Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've welcomed us by your Spirit into the body of Christ by faith and into this building tonight in fellowship, in prayer, and in praise of your name. What a blessing it is, Father, that we can be here. What a blessing it is, Father, that we can know you. And what a blessing it is, Father, that we can study in your word the way you give us the opportunity to do here. Thank you, Father, for the fact that we can see you in this text, see who you are, understand your expectations on us. And at the same time, Father, in the way you reveal yourself, we, we see how far we have to go. We are saved by our faith alone. And what a miracle that is, Father. What a, what a statement of mercy that is, that uh, we can have this relationship by faith alone when we know we could not have had it any other way. But at the same time, Father, we feel this yearning as we see who we are in the face of who you are. We see the opportunity for us to become so much more like you than we are. And we know, Father, that is your call on our heart to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for us. So, Father, tonight as we study, help us to be that, that person who cares enough about the faith and the salvation that you've given us that we would want to live according to it so that we may witness to you, to your glory and to your wisdom, to your power in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're back to chapter 9 of Matthew tonight. And we've reached the second anecdote that Matthew uses in separating the groups of miracles he has in chapters 8 and 9. You'll remember that, as I've told you here in past weeks, Matthew has organized the groups of miracles that he has in chapters 8 and 9 into three groups across these two chapters. We just finished the second group last week, and as we did, we came to the miracle of Jesus declaring the paralytic man to be forgiven of his sin. And we came out of that last week, so that means we are now poised to enter the third and final group of miracles that Matthew addresses in these chapters. But before we do that, we need to examine a scene that takes place between Jesus and his disciples and the disciples of John. Now you'll remember I've told you in the past how Matthew has separated out these groups of miracles by putting little scenes between the first and second group and between the second and the third group. Now back in chapter 8 we studied the first of those scenes that separated the first two groups and that was the scene, you may remember, that was the scene of uh, certain disciples who came to Jesus and they told Jesus that they believed, but they had all of these other things in their life that they needed to do first. So they put priority on other things instead of on following Jesus. And then Jesus' response was, as we learned, that he has full authority over his followers, and that includes having very high expectations for our obedience, for our following of him. And that was what we covered the last time. Now today, we get to that scene that separates the second and third groups, And this is actually a two-part scene. In total, it explains Jesus' power uh, over those who are in covenant with him, those who are in both the new covenant as well as in those who are in the old covenant. Now, this scene runs from chapter 9, verse 9, uh, all the way to verse 17. And it's really two different parts. So what we're going to do tonight is look at the first part of this scene. And that takes us through verses 9 through 13. And the scene begins with an eponymous reference. Matthew writes in chapter 9, verse 9, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. 
Well, we're going to pause there. I'm sure it's no surprise to some of you that I'm only going to go one verse right now. But this one verse gives us some interesting background that we need to cover. So that's what I want to focus on right now. And to introduce the scene in this one verse, Matthew tells us how he came to be one of the disciples. And first, Matthew describes Jesus as leaving Capernaum to resume his travels in the Galilee. Now, earlier uh, in this city, in this place, we saw Jesus in that room. You remember, he was in the room where the man comes down from the ceiling and, and Jesus heals him and so on. And if you remember, in that room, Jesus was confronted by this large crowd of Pharisees or scribes, uh, religious leaders. And if you remember, these are the men who had traveled up from all over Judea because they had heard some reports that Jesus might be the Messiah. And in particular, Jesus had healed that leper. And when the leper goes back and reports to the priest, that's what started all the rumors. So these men have come up to find the one who is supposedly Messiah. And their investigation will take two phases. First, the leaders will conduct a passive investigation. And by passive, I mean they just sit and observe. They note what the man says, what the person under scrutiny is saying, and what they're doing. And what they're looking for is any evidence at all that would support or disqualify their claims to being Messiah. Now that's the period that we're in right now. They're currently in this passive phase of the investigation, which is why they're following Jesus at this point. They're just observing him. Now if that passive investigation seems to go forward to something useful, if it it supports the man's claims to being Messiah, well then the religious leaders would have moved to the next phase. And the next phase is an active phase of interrogating. They would interrogate Jesus, asking him questions. And the whole point of that phase really is just to poke holes in his his claims to being Messiah. They want to try to test his claims. So that's yet to happen. But at this point, as Matthew says, Jesus has simply left that house in Capernaum. And he begins to walk on one of the major roads that passed by the city of Capernaum. And as he goes, he's followed by the crowd that we know is always with him now. the, the The ones who are coming for healing and the like. But now that crowd includes these religious leaders. And as he comes down the road, Matthew says, he encounters a tax collection booth, and in that booth sat a Jewish man named Matthew. Now this is where we need a little bit of background on the culture in order to appreciate all that's happening here. In Jesus' day, the empire of Rome, which had control over Judea, stretched from what is present-day Great Britain all the way to what we today call India. And across that immense expanse, Rome maintained a vast infrastructure. They had military posts. They had roads and bridges. They were famous for their roads. They built roads everywhere. They had government buildings. They had ports. They had ships. They had palaces and all the rest. And constructing and maintaining all of that infrastructure required a lot of money. And so naturally... What Rome did to get the money is the same thing governments have always done. They taxed their subjects. And they especially would tax conquered territories like Judea. And their taxes came in various forms. You had things that you already are familiar with today, things like income taxes and property tax. But they also had customs taxes. And for a conquered territory like Judea, customs tax was actually the chief means of raising revenue in in most cases. And in order to raise a customs tax, you have to have customs officials... Now, these men in Jesus' day were called publicans. That was the term. And a publican would be positioned at borders or at ports of entry along different roads, and they would collect tax on the goods that would pass through their port or or through that border. Now, the road that Jesus is on, the one that goes by Capernaum, 
was a major caravan route. It connected Egypt with the Far East, and many goods would travel on it. The, the goods would come up from Egypt in the south on the Via Mar. They'd come up by Capernaum, and at a point just north of the Sea of Galilee, they would turn eastward and head across the Fertile Crescent and end up in the Orient. And so this was a perfect place for a customs official to position himself. And furthermore, the road had to pass through a border near the place of Capernaum, because in the northern part of Judea, what we call Israel today, there were actually two different territories ruled by different men. You had Philip and Herod Antipas, who were the sons of Herod the Great. And these men had inherited rule over these areas of Judea after their father died in 4 BC. So on this road, you not only have a major trading route, but you also have a border. Now, another interesting detail that plays into the story is publicans were not generally paid directly by Rome for their services. Instead, the Romans would allow those officials, those publicans, to keep anything that they collected above and beyond their tax quota. So uh, the Roman authorities, for example, would assign to a publican a certain quota, you know, so much tax that they have to collect on a certain basis, daily or weekly or whatever, and they had to turn that money in. And if they came back with too little tax, then the Roman officials might beat the publican or imprison him for not doing his job. But on the other hand, if that publican was able to collect more money in taxes from various people than he was required to turn in, well, then he could keep the difference. And that's how he got paid. And furthermore, the Romans didn't use their own citizens to perform this role. They found it better, more advantageous to enlist the locals from whatever region they had conquered, to play the role of tax collector, to sit in these booths and to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. And they probably did this in part because the locals uh, knew the area better, they knew the people better, and they knew the language better. And there was another reason, because it often made them more desperate. In Judea, for example, the tax collectors would have been Jewish, and any Jew who agreed to sit in the booth and do what Matthew or Levi here was doing, they were considered traitors by the rest of the Jewish people. They were seen as supporting or or propping up the oppression of the Roman invaders and robbing the Jewish people. And so they they were pariahs. In fact, Pharisees so despised publicans that some of the rabbinical writings that you can read from that time They would use the position of publican as an illustration of the worst sinner that was possible in Israel. So on one end of a spectrum, you would have the the Pharisees themselves, perhaps, who were the best. But on the other end, you had the publican as the poster child for the worst sinner, the greatest lawbreaker in Israel. No, No Jew could be worse than a publican. And as a result, the Pharisees established some special rules just for Jews who became tax collectors for the Romans. For example, publicans were ostracized from Jewish culture. No other Jew could have anything to do with a publican. The only people who could be friends of publicans were other publicans and prostitutes. That was pretty much your entire uh, community of friends if you were a publican. In fact, in that day, the word sinner had become euphemism for those two groups. If you called someone a sinner, you were basically calling them a tax collector or a prostitute. It It was a synonym. Uh, Furthermore, publicans were not trusted. They were seen as being traitors, so they couldn't be trusted. uh, That that meant they could not testify in court. They could not be a a witness in any matter of law. And it goes so far as to include the principle that they could not repent. 
The Pharisees said that tax collectors were so far beyond the reach of God that it was literally impossible for a publican to repent of their sin and receive forgiveness. They were unredeemable people in the eyes of Pharisees. So that meant publicans were basically in a no-win situation because they had no friends either among Jews or among Romans. I mean, the Romans didn't care for them. Romans had no regard for Jews whatsoever. And the Jewish countrymen of the publican, they saw them as pariahs and unredeemable, so they had nothing to do with them. And so as a result, if that person thought they might try to win favor with somebody, for example, if they tried to win favor with their Jewish brethren by collecting less tax, they knew it was going to be a fruitless effort. There would have been no advantage in doing so. And in fact, if they didn't collect enough tax, they themselves wouldn't have enough money to eat, or even worse, they might be beaten or imprisoned. And so as a result, the only sensible course for a publican was to look out for number one, to collect as much tax as he possibly could. And as a result, they were really ruthless extortionists. These guys would pressure their fellow Jews to get every last penny of tax that they could. And if they couldn't get someone to play along, they had soldiers, Roman soldiers, standing by to enforce their demands. And their thinking was pretty simple. If I'm going to be a pariah among my own people, I might as well be a rich pariah. So on this day... Jesus passes by this booth and calls out to one of these pariahs who's sitting there doing his job and says to Matthew, follow me. Now the other synoptic gospels give this man's name as Levi, which would indicate that he's from the tribe of Levi. But you notice that the author of this gospel gives himself the name Matthew, which is of course where we get the name of the gospel itself. Matthew in Hebrew is Matthias, and that just means gift of Yahweh. But Having two names raises the question, why does Matthew give himself a new name? Well, in that day, there was a practice of doing this. It was a cultural practice within the church, that when a person became a Christian, that person would often take on a new first name, a new given name, and they did that to reflect that they had a new identity in Christ. And so Levi apparently changed his name at some point uh, after coming to faith to be Matthew. And that's the name that he prefers to use for himself in his own gospel. Now, we don't do that much here in the West, but did you know this tradition still exists today in some places? And I've seen it to be true, particularly in cultures that are in Asia or Africa today. And you may find this uh, happening even here. You may run into somebody here who has come from uh, the other part of the world, and they bring that tradition with them. And, And you'll know when you've met one of these believers who follow this tradition, because they'll have a traditional surname with a biblical first name. So someone like Moses Gaswami or Barnabas Onkonjo, that's a sign to you that you're looking at someone who has come to faith in a culture in which a new identity is reflected by a new first name. As I said, we don't do this much in the West, but I kind of like this. I mean, to me, this is a good idea. I kind of wish we did this here. You know, I came to faith as an adult in, in my late 20s. And so in my case, I can clearly see the difference in my life from before I came to faith and who I became after I came to faith, who I am still becoming in Christ. And I look at that difference and I marvel at how much difference there is, you know, how much God has done in my life. Now, look, I wasn't a a terrible person as, as some people would measure it, I guess. Before I came to Christ, you know, I wasn't killing kittens or doing weird things that, you know, made me a despicable person. I was just your typical selfish guy who only thought in worldly ways and did the kinds of things people do when that's how they think. 
And as a result, I look back on my life before Christ. I'm not especially proud of it, nor should I be. You know, I run into a friend I'd known from long ago, and, and they don't know that I'm a Christian now. They only remember me from those times past. I always wish I could, you know, apologize. I, I wish I could just talk to them about who I was and say, hey, look, I'm not that person anymore. You know, I've, I've changed, and uh, I've come to Christ, and, and I don't think like that. And, oh, by the way, that thing I said to you, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, it's, it's this instinctive feeling of, I wish I could explain how different God has made me. And how sorry I am that I was ever any other way. But that's the, the testimony we all have in faith, this, this testimony of what God has done for us. But because I can't explain that, you know, especially not in a, a 30-second conversation when you happen to meet someone in the store or whatever, I wonder how, how much easier would it be for me to explain that difference if I had a new first name? like we see happening here. Wouldn't that be kind of interesting when you meet that person, they go, hey, Steve, haven't seen you forever. How you doing? And I say, sorry, my name's not Steve anymore. And they say, what? And, and you give them your new name, and, and they say, well, why did that happen? What, why did you change your name? And there you go. There's your testimony moment. There's your chance to explain things. And I have to tell you, I like this idea so much that I've actually decided I'm going to do this. I, yes, I'm, I'm totally serious. I'm going to adopt a new first name, as a testimony of my new life in Christ. And I have adopted as my new name an important biblical character's name out of the Bible. I think that's an appropriate thing to do. We should, should go to the Bible for our new name. And I don't want to tell you what it is. I think it would be more fun if you guys go look it up for yourself. It's in chapter 7 in the book of Acts. And I've selected as the person I want to name myself after is the first martyr in the Bible. And so if you go look up his name in chapter 7 of Acts, you'll see who he is. And that's now my new first name. Next time you see me, I want you to call me by my new first name. All right, so let's go back. It just occurred to me that this is actually a good test for who knows what's in Acts chapter 7 right now. All right, let's go back to chapter 9 of Matthew. And back in the text uh, of Matthew, we have him sitting in the tax collector's booth. We have Jesus calling out to him and saying, follow me. Now, just to be clear... Matthew knew what that meant. Matthew understood because those words were were rabbinical words. They had a very certain meaning. That is that Jesus was inviting Matthew to become his disciple, to leave his current life and to begin a new one as a disciple of this rabbi. And if you or I had been standing there next to Matthew when he heard those words, I guarantee you, you could have pushed him over with a feather. He would have been absolutely... Uh, beside himself, speechless at this. It would have been the most unbelievable thing in the world to him that a respectable Jewish rabbi would have even thought to stop and say a word to him, much less to have welcomed Matthew into his company. I mean, it's possible that Matthew had not spoken to another Jew, apart from another publican or prostitute, for probably several years, at least since he took up this role. He's been completely ignored by any other person. And now he's talking to a Jewish rabbi. And I should add, not just your ordinary run-of-the-mill Jewish rabbi, Jesus was the talk of the Galilee. Uh, This man was, some were saying, was going to be the Messiah of Israel. I mean, that's why he has a crowd. So here's here's Matthew sitting in his tax-collecting booth on a road, and he sees this entourage coming toward him with Jesus at the front. And he must have suspected who it was if he didn't outright know who it was. And the man's just walking straight toward him. And you know he would have been fascinated by the whole scene. He would have been watching it all, staring at it all in fascination. And I wonder if he might have even been a little jealous, 
Is that the right word? Envious, maybe, of what he was seeing? Because wouldn't he have thought to himself, I would give anything just to have the, the company that this man can have, you know, to have even just a little bit of the respect that he has among his countrymen? But that was crazy, right? Matthew couldn't possibly expect that. After all, he's an outcast. I mean, he doesn't have a true friend in the world. There, there's, there's no reason for him to expect anything like that. And then the miracle happens. Jesus passes by the whole crowd adoring him, wanting his attention, and he stops. He looks at this pariah in his tax collection booth. He catches Matthew's eyes, and he says, Follow me. And I have to think, Matthew must have just, at that moment, looked behind him, like, are you talking to me? Is is there another guy here? And when he realizes it's him that Jesus is talking to, maybe he pinches himself to say, am I dreaming? Is this real? And as soon as he realizes it's for him, it says he just runs out of the booth and he begins to follow Jesus. In Luke's Gospel, uh, we read that Matthew left, quote, everything behind, Luke says. Now, I love that phrase. He left everything. I mean, he left his tax collecting booth, yeah, and he, and he would have left the money that was sitting in there, I'm sure. And he left behind his responsibilities to serve Rome in that way. He left behind the protection of the Roman soldiers who were there. But you know what else he left behind? He left behind his shame, and he left behind his guilt. He left behind the things that were separating him from, from the people and from the lifestyle he used to know. And I know he probably didn't expect that the Jewish people were going to embrace him right away or forgive him for what he did or forget what he had done. But I tell you what, I bet gaining new friends among the Jews was not his first concern at that point. Because friends, when you are a friend of the king, you don't need a lot of other friends. You don't need to have the approval of the population. When the God of the universe has called you to follow him, that's enough. At least at first. Certainly that's all he needed at that moment. Immediately, Matthew joins Jesus. So we don't know what they said, but it's apparent that Matthew must have opened up an invitation to Jesus to come back to his house and celebrate this moment with the company of some of his friends and have a party and and so on, and Jesus accepts. It's kind of reminiscent, in fact, of the story of the prodigal son, in a way, because you have the outcast who comes back, is accepted by the father, and then they throw a big party. And that's, I guess, what Matthew was doing. And so that's where we go next in the account. Matthew, Matthew picks up there in verse 10. He says, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Well, so Jesus is seen reclining in Matthew's home. Now, in that day, people didn't eat at tables the way we do today. In fact, if you remember the famous painting that we have of the Last Supper with all the disciples lined up on one side of a high table, well, that that, that scene is complete fiction. Uh, First of all, people don't all sit on one side of a table, obviously. But secondly, um, the tables in that day didn't stand up on legs. They were on the floor. And you would sit around the, the table, lying actually on the floor, on cushions, so that you would eat at this table. And if you're trying to figure out how do you eat while you're lying on a cushion, well, you would prop your body up on one arm on your elbow, and you would eat with the opposite hand. 
and your feet would be laying out behind you, pointed away from the table. And so people just fanned out around the table as they ate, reclining. Now the reason it's important to know he's reclining is because it tells you something about the atmosphere of that meal. When you are lying down on the floor like that as you eat, you're close to the person next to you. It's a very intimate setting. It's joyful and intimate, and you're literally rubbing elbows with the person next to you. So now I want you to imagine this scene again, as I just described it, Jesus in that environment. But now imagine him surrounded on either side by tax collectors and sinners. And when Matthew uses the word sinner here, he's using it in that euphemistic way. So on one side or the other of Jesus, there may be a woman, a prostitute, who is sharing this meal with Jesus and the other tax collectors. Remember, these are the only kinds of people that could associate with one another in that culture. No one else would have anything to do with them. And by the way, as you imagine this prostitute next to Jesus, I don't want you to imagine the the pretty woman style prostitutes, you know, from, from the old movie. No, no, no. I want you to imagine the worst of this. I mean, the reality of this. Women who have been in this life for a while and have had to suffer through all that it brings them and the kind of destitution that it brings to someone like that. This is not a scene of happy-go-lucky people. These are down-and-out people. And now that's, that's some party that Jesus is at. I mean, you've got food and drink, and you've got some rich bad guys and some loose women of ill repute. That's the scene we're talking about here. Now, we understand why Matthew has this company, because, is, again, he was a publican, so these are the only kind of people who would accept him. But now, let's be honest. Are you a little uncomfortable with the notion of, of your Lord and Savior rubbing elbows, sharing that kind of company, extortionists, prostitutes? Now, I know in our minds we sit there and say, well, no, I, this is appropriate. That's what our Lord is supposed to do. Well, yes, I know you would say that, and I'm sure you mean it, but if you think about the scene visually for a moment, you were to come upon it, look in the window, would you feel comfortable? Would it not appear a little off to you, as if maybe Jesus was in the wrong place, or he was doing some damage, as we might say, to his witness in that place? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we start to feel a little uncomfortable about this as we imagine it. That was certainly the way the Pharisees felt when they saw it. They see Jesus enter this home, and they're beside themselves with disgust. They're they're saying, why is he doing this? A tax collector's home is off limits to any self-respecting Jew, certainly. And in fact, none of the Pharisees would go in there and eat at that table, of course. They just stand around outside looking through the window, grumbling and grousing and making complaints. In verse 11, we're told that they speak with uh, Jesus' disciples. Now, you notice they do not ask Jesus himself, they go to his disciples and they say, why is your teacher, or in Hebrew, rabbi, why is he eating with these sinners? Now, they're, what they're doing here is very subtle. They're indicting Jesus' character to Jesus' disciples because they want to suggest to these disciples, you know, you may be following the wrong guy here. You know, the true Messiah, he wouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. You know, you wouldn't find the true Messiah rubbing elbows with the likes of these. So maybe you ought to rethink whether you've got the right Messiah here. That's the whole point of this. They, they want these disciples to start to think twice about Jesus. Now, let's be clear about something here. Jesus was not sinning. 
There's nothing in the Bible that says you cannot associate with someone who is a tax collector or a prostitute. That's not a sin. The law of God has never said it was a sin. The Bible never says it's wrong. It was only wrong according to the Pharisees. Friends, if you're going to try to go out into this world and avoid contact with sinners, or you're never going to eat a meal with people who have sin, you're going to spend the rest of your life alone. Oh, and by the way, you're still in the company of sinners. You're in your own company. So it's a foolish not mindset that says we can't spend time with sinners. Somehow God doesn't like that. There's no other option on how to live our life. That's the world we have. Now that doesn't mean we participate in their sin, but Jesus isn't doing that here. He's not participating in the sin of these people. He's simply having a meal with them. Notice how Jesus responds in verses 12 and 13. It's a well-known and an often quoted observation. He says, healthy people don't need a visit from the doctor. It's the sick people who need doctors. Luke also records Jesus saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what Jesus is saying, of course, is that these people that he is with are the spiritually sick And by the way, that's something that both the Pharisees and Jesus could have readily agreed upon. The Pharisees would have said very quickly, Oh yes, these people are very sick spiritually. They are the worst. They they are incurably sick, in fact. Now that wasn't a point of disagreement. But the point of disagreement that they had was over what is our spiritual obligation to such people. Now the Pharisees had concluded that God has no mercy for such people. They believe God showed mercy to those who were righteous, to those who kept the law of Moses and the oral law of the Pharisees. And naturally, the Pharisees saw themselves as the perfect example of that kind of a person. They were the perfect candidate for God's mercy. But on the other end of the spectrum, you had your tax collector and your prostitute. These people were beyond reach. So you had no obligation as a religious leader to minister to those people because they were unredeemable. They had written them off. And so their thinking is that Jesus is wasting his time, selling himself, spending time in the company of people who could only lower him by association. Now Jesus had a different view of his obligation to these people. He says that that's not how doctors work. And as such, he was comparing himself to a doctor. Obviously, he was acting like a doctor in the sense that he was bringing the medicine of God's mercy to those who needed forgiveness the most. And that's why he's spending time with this crowd, by the way, and not with the Pharisees. He says, I came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. Now keep in mind, Jesus was not crediting the Pharisees with being righteous. Obviously, there is no one who is righteous on earth. The Bible says that. He's speaking to their state of mind. He's saying that the Pharisees were thinking themselves righteous, And as a result, not in need of repentance or of forgiveness. And so Jesus is simply saying to them, Why are you bothered that I would spend time with the people that you know are the sinners of the world and not spend time with you? After all, why should I bring forgiveness to those who believe they've done nothing wrong? Now, as obvious as all this sounds to us, that's not how the Pharisees understood the mission of the Messiah. If you had asked them, Will the Messiah's mission be like a doctor? or a conqueror. They would have answered the latter. They, in fact, saw themselves as the best example of God's standards and expectations for the people. They they thought that when the Messiah finally arrived, that Messiah would come and affirm their Pharisaic rabbinical culture. The the Messiah would pat them on the back. Uh, They would uh, be congratulated for having done so well in their life of Pharisaic living. 
And then for that reason, they thought the Messiah would actually be like a super Pharisee. He would look like them. He would talk like them. He would sound like them. He, he would be like the teacher who walks down the aisle putting gold stars on the papers of the A students. And they were going to have a paper full of gold stars when he showed up. And that's how they saw the Messiah. So they would never have imagined that a Messiah would come with the interest of helping the least of, of providing medicine, so to speak, to those who were sick. They, they assumed that was not in the Messiah's interest. And that is the chief conceit of self-righteousness. That is, self-righteousness is thinking yourself worthy of God's attention or God's approval based on your own merits, conveniently forgetting how bad you truly are. That's what the Pharisees did. Their self-deception was in overestimating their virtues and underestimating their faults. And as a result, they couldn't understand why a Messiah would take interest in people who were unworthy of it. They looked down their noses at tax collectors. They looked down their noses at prostitutes because they were righteous and the others were not. I've said this before. You probably remember me saying this before. But you cannot judge another person in these ways, as the Pharisees did, unless you consider yourself better than that person spiritually or morally. If you were to admit or to agree that you are just as much a sinner as someone else, you lose the ability to stand in judgment over them. You just can't do it. Judgment is, by its nature, a process of putting yourself over another person. So they, the Pharisees, could judge these other people because they saw no need to judge themselves. But if we're honest with ourselves, we understand our sin properly, then we don't have the basis to judge anyone else. My sin might be different than yours, but it's all sin. It doesn't really matter what you do versus what I do. It only matters what we do versus what God says. So if we all have sin in some form, who among us can judge? The Bible says that there is no one who is righteous. There is no one who is without sin. And the Bible says even one sin is enough to make a person a lawbreaker, a sinner. And furthermore, nothing a person can do from that point forward can erase that one mistake. So one sin is enough to make you a sinner and nothing can change it after it happens. That is, nothing we do can change it. Only God can erase it. Only God can forgive it, which is why Jesus came to earth, to erase our sins, so to speak. But now these men say they have no sin, and so they were left in their sins in eternal condemnation because they did not acknowledge their need for forgiveness. And what's really ironic is that while these guys are outside the house condemning those who are in it, it's the so-called sinners that are in the house with Jesus who are actually receiving God's forgiveness because of their faith. What's at the core of all of this? It's pride. It's pride. Pride is an ugly thing. It was the thing that brought the first man to sin, and it's the thing standing in the way of these men finding forgiveness now. And so to those self-righteous men, Jesus says in verse 13, Go and learn what this means. Now that phrase, go and learn, is also a rabbinical technique. It's the way rabbis would sometimes teach their their disciples. Think of it like this. It's basically homework. It's a homework assignment. And in this particular case, the homework that he assigns these Pharisees was from a quote out of the prophet Hosea in uh, the Old Testament. And in the prophet's writings... He quotes from them that, uh, from the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament. And since he's assigned them homework, and we're not sure if they actually went and did it, I doubt they did, 
but let's go do it for them. Let's, let's try doing the homework. Let's go see what we learn if we go find that passage in Hosea. It's in Hosea chapter 6. And the one that Jesus actually quoted uh, in verse 13 was uh, Hosea 6.6. 6, but we're going to read 6.6 6 and 6.7. So let me read it to you. The prophet says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant There they have dealt treacherously against me. So that's what Jesus said they should go and learn what this means. So in Hosea 6.6, he says that the Lord delights in loyalty rather than sacrifice. Now in the quote that Jesus gave, he says, compassion rather than sacrifice. And the reason he gave a different word is he was quoting out of the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. And they had changed that meaning just slightly because they were changing it in keeping with the underlying meaning of what Hosea is saying. They were effectively interpreting it in a helpful way to explain what the real sense was of the prophet's words. Because the Hebrew word there translated loyalty in our case is actually the word for loving kindness in the Bible. Elsewhere in the Old Testament you'll see the the word loving kindness show up. And loving kindness is the actual Hebrew word here, and it's a covenant term. Loving kindness is a word in a covenant that describes the self-sacrificial devotion and service one party is to show to the other party in that covenant. So in a covenant, you were to place the other person's needs above your own. So if you went into covenant with the man who owned the property next to you, you were obligated to put the concerns of him and his property above even your own concerns. That is, in a covenant, you were supposed to be loyal to the other person's interests above your own and to stay that way regardless of what the other person does. And then that's the covenant we have with Jesus, right? In the covenant we have through blood in Jesus, we have a loving-kindness relationship. Jesus showed us loving-kindness in that He died in our place on a cross. That is definitely putting your needs above His own. Now, what's our part in that covenant? Now that we've come into it by faith, well, we show Jesus loving kindness by having a a sacrificial attitude toward Him in our life as we live it out. We are to live out loving kindness for the sake of Christ, doing what His desire would be over our own. Now, the Bible says, Isaiah says, God delights in loving kindness rather than in Sacrifices. Now, where are sacrifices found in the Bible? Well, principally, they are part of the law. They are part of how God established a covenant with Israel, the old covenant. But now, sacrifices were a good thing. God expected them to be done. They were not a wrong thing to do. In fact, they were a necessary thing to do under the old covenant because they were a way that God expected the nation to respond to their sin. You see, that's what a sacrifice is for. A sacrifice is something done in response to sin. And so if you don't sin at all, well, you don't need a sacrifice. Uh, If you do sin, you need a sacrifice. And so the Lord says that he prefers or delights in loving kindness rather than in sacrifice. But he gave both. He gave covenants of loving kindness and he also gave covenants that included sacrifice. So we might ask, in what sense does the Lord prefer one over the other? And the answer comes in the next line of that verse where he says, the Lord desires knowing him, that we would know him, the knowledge of him, more so or over burnt offerings. So in other words, what he's saying is that the Lord is contrasting a covenant of faith, a covenant of loving kindness with a covenant of law. Now both covenants had good purpose, 
But one was preferred over the other because one is internal and one is external. You know, if you are in the covenant of grace by faith in Jesus Christ, there are internal things happening in you. You have come to faith, your heart is changed and born again, you have the Spirit of God living inside you. And that, that change, that loving kindness of the covenant of God in your heart, produces in you a new person. As I was describing in my own life earlier today, the idea that I have become different inside, and it shows itself on the outside, But that change has come because I have now entered into a covenant, into a relationship with God himself, and he is doing a work inside me as a result. That's a result of faith. But now the old covenant, the old covenant was an external covenant. I mean, you could perform the works of covenant, the works of law in faith, if you were a faithful man or woman, but you didn't have to. Unfaithful, unbelieving people also could go to the temple and sacrifice animals, and many did over many centuries of time. And so it was a purely external ritual act. It did not require nor produce saving faith. It was something God asked for Israel to do for other reasons. And so the covenant of law being external, it had a purpose, but it was a muted purpose. The covenant of faith in Jesus Christ has an internal purpose that is salvitic, that takes you to God and to an eternity with Him. So if you're to choose one of these ways to please God, He says in his own word, we should rely on the covenant of faith more so than the covenant of sacrifice. He delights in loving kindness more than he does rather than in sacrifice. But that's not the way the Pharisees understood their relationship with God. And that's why Jesus assigned them this homework. What they were missing was they believed that God delighted in their sacrifices. And that's true whether we're talking animal sacrifices in the temple or all the many personal sacrifices that they would make in their life. But all of these things combined were what they thought united them to God's mercy. But sacrifice is not a means to gaining God's mercy. It is an act of atonement. It is an act of restitution. And it is required for all who have sinned. That is, if you're sacrificing, it means you're still a sinner. And if you're still a sinner, it means you have not yet been reconciled to God. You are not yet in the state in which you can receive His mercy. So that's why Jesus gave the Pharisees this homework. Because He knew that they were relying on the law in an act of self-righteousness to bring themselves to God. And friends, when you live in a state of self-righteousness, of thinking that you are meriting your own relationship with God, that you are putting yourself in a place where you are worthy of God's attention, self-righteousness in this way does not breed compassion. It results in judgment. And that's what allowed them to stand in judgment over those who didn't measure up to their efforts. And I think that's why the Septuagint had the insight to translate that verse to say, I desire compassion rather than sacrifice, because that's the essence of this. That as God has poured out His mercy on someone in a covenant of loving kindness, the expectation is that they, in recognition of what God has done for them, that they would respond in compassion for those who likewise should need the same from God. Other sinners, other down and out. It should be the primary motivation of every believer that they would go out seeking for the lost primarily because they were once the lost. And that is the sense of compassion that these men had lost. Notice in the second line I read out of Hosea 6, 
that the prophet says that these people, those who would prefer sacrifice over loving kindness, they are like Adam. They too have transgressed the covenant. They too are sinners. He's pointing out the fact that they don't see their own sin, obviously. They obey the outward requirements of the law in sacrifice, and yet they violate that same law continually in their hearts. Now that's the Pharisees, and that's how Jesus confronted them. But I need to ask this question for everyone in here. Are we following Jesus this way? Now surely those of us who know and follow Jesus know better than to think like the Pharisees did, right? We, we remember that we were once the sick who needed the healing that Jesus brought us, right? And as a result, I'm sure everyone in here would look among those in the society around us, the worst of those in our society, as people who need Jesus also. We, we, we would understand that, right? And of course, knowing that Jesus is no longer on the earth... And we are, as the song says, we are his hands, we're his feet now. So clearly, we should know that we need to go visit the places where the worst sinners of our day are currently gathered so that we can rub elbows with them and we can bring them the compassion of Christ also, right? Well, you know what? I think if we're a little honest with ourselves right now, we will admit that that's not something we find very easy to do, is it? We're a lot more interested in working with the person down the street who looks like us and sounds like us and lives like us. In fact, it'd be better if they were kind of already living a very Christian-like life, as far as we could tell. That, that's the person we really want to talk to about Jesus. We, we want to make extra sure that they have salvation. Oh, but that person who's the drug addict, the prostitute, the gang member, now we're not so sure that we are the right person to go speak to them, are we? So ask yourself this, would you have walked into that house with Jesus? I know you're sitting there thinking right now, well, of course I would. I mean, it's just tax collectors after all. It's just prostitutes. Okay, but we've got to change the circumstances a little bit before you can answer that question properly because we need to make it more culturally relevant today. Today, we wouldn't be worried about a house full of tax collectors, not unless we hadn't paid our taxes, I guess. But what if that was a house today that was a crack house? What if there was a room full of crackheads in there? Would you have gone in there and had dinner? I'll bet you there's a house like that not far from where you live right now, wherever you are, and I'll bet you if you drove by it, you wouldn't even stop, would you? Well, what about a brothel? Uh, what about a homosexual bar? You see, I'm not saying we go to all these places. I'm not saying we have to be so foolish as to just throw ourselves in harm's way if it's not somewhere we can actually go in a safe way. I get it. Not every place is worthy of our time in that way. But, friends, self-righteousness is a seductive suitor. And you can fall for him before you even know that, that he's in the room. Because in the beginning, we all come to Jesus the same way. We all come repentant, and we're all acknowledging we're a sinner, and we need a Savior, and we're the spiritually sick, and we want the doctor, Jesus, to heal us. We all get that at the beginning. But the thing is, once you get that forgiveness, once it's in your heart, and you start living in it, it can be a little tempting to, to turn into a Pharisee in ways. You, you can start to think to yourself, that Jesus saved you because you were a spiritual all-star. You, you were already someone worthy of that attention. And you're saying to yourself right now, no, I, I don't think that. I know I didn't deserve it, and so on. But here's a test for you. You'll know when you started to take that turn towards self-righteousness, at least in your thinking, if you've forgotten the lesson of Hosea 6. That is, if you lose sight of compassion and you start trusting in your sacrifices. And here's what I mean by that. The way we sacrifice in our life to make ourselves more pleasing to God. Like even just coming to church. 
How many of you see coming to church as a sacrifice of time that you're making for God? Or maybe it's the way you sacrifice your money in giving money to the church. Or the way you sacrifice the things you want to do, that you police your behavior against doing certain things that you know you shouldn't do, but you wish you could, and yet that's a sacrifice you're making for God. Now, if you're thinking a little bit like that sometimes, and you feel like you're getting credit with God for these sacrifices, you are just one small step away at that point from looking down your nose at those dirty sinners that are everywhere. And you know the ones I'm talking about, right? These are the people who, when you look at them, you think, they aren't as good as I am, they aren't as equal to me, they, have, they can't equal my sacrifices, they aren't as pleasing to God as I am, they are unredeemable. Sometimes it's the person with all the tattoos, right? Oh, a tattoo, that's, that makes you no longer acceptable to God. Or people with the checkered past, all those terrible things they've done before that you've never done. Sometimes we get really silly about this. You know, it's the person who watches R-rated movies or HBO. Well, that person's out of reach. God can't save them. They, they watch Game of Thrones. They're beyond reach. Or it's, uh, you know, today in this recent time, it's maybe the ones who are voting Democrat. Oh, I can't stand that. Or whatever our political affiliations are. Now, you want to know how easy this is? Let me show you how easy this is. Let me ask you a few questions. And I want you to see what's in your heart when you hear this question. And if you uh, react to it the way I think some of you will, you should be sensing in yourself that maybe your compassion meter has started to drop a little bit. And it's because you're self-satisfied, self-righteous about your standing with God. So here's one of the questions. If the gay married couple living next door to you asked you to come to their house for dinner, would you accept that invitation? Well, how about this? Would you invite them to have dinner at your house? The couple coming over, sitting at your table, holding hands at your table, eating dinner with you? Hey, I got news flash for everybody. It's not a sin to sit at a table with a homosexual couple and eat dinner. It doesn't rub off on you. You're not guilty by association. They can be in your house even. It's not the end of the world. All right, here's the second question. What if a prostitute walked in this room, into our building right now, walked in, sat down in your aisle, in this church, a few seats away from you right now? And again, don't imagine a pretty woman-style prostitute. We're not talking about someone who could blend in here. I want you to imagine one who's wearing the normal working attire of a lady of the night and something scandalous, something that, that catches your eye and everyone wonders, who is that woman and why is she here? And she's just sat down next to you on the aisle. Now, what would you do at that point? Do you, do you move a few seats closer to her so you can introduce yourself and welcome her? Or do you move a few seats away so that you don't have to be seen with her? Oh, and by the way, gentlemen, I should add at this point that we're not talking about passion here, gentlemen. We're talking about compassion. All right, here's a third question. What if the Mormons living in your neighborhood invited you to a church meeting in their home with some other elders from the church? Would you go there? You see, that's not a sin either. The point is, there are things that we have ruled out at times, things we won't do, people we won't talk to, places we won't be seen, and we say to ourselves, we've made these distinctions because we don't want to see our testimony damaged. Friends, what is your testimony for? Isn't it your testimony supposed to be a light that goes into darkness? Isn't the whole point of having a testimony to go to people who need to hear it? Isn't that what Jesus said? The doctor goes to the sick. We're too busy protecting our testimony by not going to anyone who needs to hear it, it seems, at least, sometimes. So the real question we're asking ourselves here is, do you see yourself as a doctor ready to meet the needs of the spiritually sick wherever they happen to be, to meet them where they are? 
Or are we Pharisees that just wait for the sick to heal themselves somehow before we're willing to reward them with our association and our approval? That we think people need to clean themselves up before they come to Jesus, forgetting that you and I came to Jesus when we were still pretty dirty, when we were filthy ourselves. And look, I know we have to be careful. We have to be discerning about these things. I'm not saying that every time and place is suitable for us to walk into and and bring our company into those places. But friends, in my experience, those situations that are not appropriate are few and far between. But there are going to be a lot of places at a lot of times that you pass by that you could be a part of if you felt the need to bring Christ to those people. Just like when Jesus passed by Levi. Men and women who are sitting, as it were, by the side of the road, who are living under a cloud of shame and rejection, and they are just watching the privileged of the world pass them by day after day, and they're thinking to themselves, I could be part of that crowd, but no, it won't be true, because I have been rejected. They think I'm unredeemable. I have no chance. And as a result, they have no concept at all that they too could be a child of the king. The only thing standing between them and that dream is a word from you about Jesus Christ. If someone would just stop long enough and take note of them and call them to follow Jesus, you never know. There are some out there who are ready to leave everything behind. They are more than ready. They are ready to leave behind the guilt and the shame and the hopelessness and the deprivation and the rejection and the pain and all the stuff that they have now learned is a part of the life they're living, the godless life that they have chosen. And they're ready to drop it. And they're ready to celebrate if they could just find purpose and hope and longing to something in this life. And if they could find Jesus, they'll be the first to invite you to go back and see their friends. And then that ministry might just become something quite extraordinary. One person might turn into a house full of people. Remember, the Lord expects us to bring loving kindness into this covenant relationship that we have with Him, putting His interests here above our own. And that's what Jesus did for us. That's what He's asking us to do for others. But if you're going to do that, if we're going to do that, we have to be useful to God in rubbing elbows with the very people who He has said need His forgiveness. And I find that the key to having a heart willing to go do that is to remember you were once just like them. Now, yeah, we didn't necessarily share their lifestyle in all respects, but we were no more righteous than they were. We had the same eternal fate that they did, and we were only by the grace of God made a child of God, by the same gospel that you can bring them. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Go and learn this. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. And I think the same is said to us here today. Go and learn this. Compassion is what God is asking us to demonstrate. The compassion He showed us first. Not a sacrifice that somehow makes us worthy of what He's already given us freely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much, Father, for grace and mercy. We thank You that You chose us before the foundations of the earth to receive that mercy, and not because of anything we have said or done, but merely because of Your grace. And in that, Father, we see your compassion. And we know, Father, you have told us in your word that you desire we would show that same compassion to others. Please, Father, remind us of that here tonight in your word, that our hearts are to be directed to the needs of those who are spiritually sick, willing to bring to them the love you showed us, whatever way you call us to do, Father. Just give us a heart 
that wants to do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.